0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 304 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Brian Hogan. Hello, everyone. Jason Sweat. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, go submit your talks for Rails or Ruby Remote Comp. We also have a special guest this week, and that is Obi Fernandez. Obi, do you want to say hi, introduce yourself for a second?
1: Yeah, hi. It's... Um... Pleasure to be on the show. Longtime fan. Um, I'm probably best known in the Rails community for writing the Railway series: uh, Rails Way, the Rails Three Way, Rails Four Way. Actually worked with Jason a little bit at a company called Andela. That's really kicking ass, developing, um, uh, helping to to cultivate uh, a software development uh, culture in Africa, of all places, and. Um, yeah, just been doing software development and stuff in that area for almost 25 years (laughs) coming on 25 years. So yeah, that's me. Awesome.
0: Well, I'm just going to jump right in, um, with some of this. Uh, so the rails five way or the rail, I remember when it was the rails two way (laughs) Mm -hmm. or the rails way, uh, you know, those books coming out. Um, I'm curious, what what kind of prompted that? How how did you wind up pulling that together? And it seems like it's kind of grown into this whole professional Ruby series, so it's it's more than just that book now. Hey, everybody, this is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Conf. Uh, we just picked speakers. Things are looking really good, and uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js about becoming a better developer, about deployment, about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out, jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there. That together, And it seems like it's kind of grown into this whole professional Ruby series. So it's, it's more than just that book now.
1: Uh, Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, it's ancient history now, but I mean, at the first, uh, the first RubyConf I ever went to uh, was in 2005. And um, there was an editor uh, from Addison Wesley there, and she was asking... Great gal, Deborah uh, Williams from from uh, Addison-Wesley. She was asking around, just trying to get a sense of, of who were the writers in the group, uh, as editors do at conferences. Um, and someone referred her to me because I was blogging a lot about, about Ruby and Rails. Uh, I had just come out of about nine years in, in the Java community. I was really, really excited and was writing a lot of things on my blog almost every day. So uh, she said, do you want to write a a book about Ruby and or Rails? And at the time, their only Ruby book was The Ruby Way by Hal Fulton. And that had done reasonably well, and they just kind of wanted to do something else uh, using Ruby. And the... The interesting part was that originally I, I didn't really have a great idea for, for the book, but I had started doing some consulting with Rails in at the enterprise level at a, at a big company called John Deere. And I said, you know, I think uh, I think I can write about using Rails in the enterprise. And in, in fact, like I think the, the year after that, I gave a talk at O'Reilly uh, OSCON about that uh, sort of thing. It amazing because it was way premature. Like it was just a very, very ambitious kind of topic. And I, and, but she said, fine. And I, you know, presented an outline and I started working on the book and I got about two, three chapters in and realized, oh man, I I don't have, I don't really have a book here. (laughs) Like using Rails in the enterprise is like a blog post, you know, or something like that. It's not really a full length book. But then I I was looking at the fact that the Ruby way, uh, had become a competitor, uh, a viable competitor to the prag, to the Prague's Ruby reference book. And I said, let me just do that for rails. Uh, and then the market can have like another option versus the, the pragmatic rails book. And they thought that was a good idea. And, um, in talking to some other authors and things like that, it kind of started very quickly figuring out like, Hey, if you're going to put the energy into writing a book, you might as well write a, a big ass reference book. Um, you know, something that a lot of people are going to buy. So I started working on that. They, the railway ended up taking two years to write, but, um, along the way, um, I was pretty proud of myself and I, I called my dad Marco. Um, and, and he was, he was visiting and, and I, I was talking to him and bragging about the book and he wasn't really getting what a big deal it was to have a book being being published on Addison Wesley. So I walk over and I pull Martin Fowler's uh, uh, Patterns of uh, Enterprise um, Application Architecture off the shelf and like bring it over to him. And I'm like, look, dad, you, you know, I used to work with Martin. Or I, I guess at the time I was still working with Martin. I'm like, and Martin's a big deal. He's like one of the best-selling authors in, in the tech world, and he's like this highly respected figure. And this is his publisher, and I'm publishing a book with this publisher. And he takes a look at the book, and if you look at that book, you'll see that it's a Martin Fowler signature series. And my dad's a ballbuster, and uh, you know he kind of, he loves to <laughs> troll people. So he says to me, uh. Eh, you know he was like super mad about it he's like get back to me when you have a signature series yourself
2: so was, <laughs> that's
1: really funny i was um i was kind of annoyed uh but also thought it was kind of funny and, and whatever i thought it was a funny story so i told deb uh my editor and she was like oh sweetie she talks with this sudden draw she's like oh sweetie You could have a series if you want one. You just got to send me a series proposal. I said, A signature series? No, not a signature series, but you can have a series. You could be a series editor. And I said, Okay, what what does that mean? And she said, No, you just got to have an idea for the series. And it seems like Ruby's going to take off. Keep in mind, this is like 2006, right? It it seems like Ruby's going to take off. And I was pretty excited. So I put together a proposal and I put all these ideas for books. So it was like Ruby and XML ruby and uh you know printing stuff with ruby i don't know it was like a list of 20 titles of stuff that i thought would be good with you know to to do in a ruby series and i submitted it and they said okay and uh as a series editor uh you basically take over the job of um i guess it's called executive editing and you're pretty much thinking about okay what are the ideas who can i get to write them how can i recruit them Uh, kind of overall vision, overall quality control, you know, helping out, you get to write the forwards and uh, you make what's called an override on the royalty. So you basically make uh, a few points uh, or less actually, but you know, you make, you make some money on each one of the titles sold in the series. So I got to say, it's a pretty good deal. And you get the prestige of being able to say, I'm the series editor of the professional Ruby series by Addison Wesley, uh, which is not as big a deal as it sounds, but you know it's, it generally impresses people.
2: Obi, I have a question about how the mm-hmm. book came into existence. Sure. Um, so I read your book, Obi, like way before I met you, and oh. uh, we talked on the phone. Which, by the way, it was, it was like getting a call from the president or something <laughs> like that when I first talked to you, because it was like, "Oh, I've read your book, and now we're we're talking." Um, it's
1: so unfortunate how much that's been devalued
2: these days. But okay, go ahead. <laughs> Well, you know, your book, it's, it's pretty thick, like it's pretty comprehensive. Um, and when I read it, I'm like, wow, this guy knows a lot about rails. I, I wonder how he like knew all this stuff about rails and then apparently just took what was in his head and wrote it down. And since that time, I've talked with a lot more people who have written books and I'm learning that maybe it doesn't really work that way. Like maybe I had it backwards. Maybe a person doesn't know all that stuff to start with. And then they just do a brain dump into a book. Maybe they say, I want to write a book. And then the book is what forces them to learn all that stuff. Um, and you know, it probably works both ways in different cases, but I wonder, I wonder how, what was the case with you? Like, obviously you knew some stuff about rails, but did the process of writing that book, like force you to learn a lot more stuff than you already knew No. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's, a
1: good, <laughs> it's a it's a good question and you're you're spot on i mean it it did force me to learn a lot <laughs> i had it, writing a book especially a big reference book like that is has a lot more to do than just writing you know it has and, and also i got a lot of help like you know david black wrote a couple of the chapters uh and they're Trotter cash and you know, there's like all these people that, that wrote some significant, uh, portions of things. And when you undertake an effort like that, and I can't, I can't remember how big the railway was, but it was at, at least 700 pages. Um, you're not writing it all yourself. You know, you're, you're pulling it together. You're And there's just no way, especially at that time, that that I could possibly have all that stuff in my head. I don't know that anyone could have a big reference book like that in their head. I just I don't think it works that way unless you're a freak of nature like Tim Pope or something. But it's, uh, you know, generally speaking, you have you have an outline, you have the areas you want to cover and then uh, you delve in and then you do the research and then you flesh it out. For, for a reference book now, since that time, I've also written some other uh, books and manuscripts that are slightly different styles. And for those kinds of books, I use something called the Fieldstone Method, uh, which was named uh, and popularized by, by Gerald Weinberg. And what you do there is like you use something like Evernote or, you know, or just simple text files or whatever, and you keep track of ideas and notes as they come to you organically. So you're not working on a fixed schedule. You're just every, anytime you see, and it's called the field stone method because, uh, somewhere, I don't know where, but you know, they build walls out of field stones and a field stone is literally a, a rock, a stone that you find in a field. (laughs) And I guess if you were a farmer back in the day or whatever, you couldn't go to Home Depot and just buy a whole bunch of rocks. You would have to make a pile of rocks, and then eventually, sometimes I guess after years, if, you know, of collecting these rocks as you came as you plowed them up, and you had sufficiently big sized rocks, then you could build a wall. So, so the fieldstone method for writing a book, uh, which I've used now a couple times uh you know i feel like pretty successfully is you keep these notes and you 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 know you know that you eventually write it want to write a book you don't know when you're going to get to it but eventually you have a big enough pile of these topics that you can put them together and um the other thing too is you know for anyone that's trying to write a book one yeah it's better better to write um kind of like generalist topics, things that are, are a little more evergreen and, and that can be seen by a wide audience 2 don't assume that you're just going to write it all yourself. Like you're going, I, I'm kind of repeating myself a little bit, but you're going to get a lot of help and you should get a lot of help. Like people love to help. And, and, um, if, even if you wrote every single word in there, you're still going to need people to review it. You're going to still need uh, technical review, which is people like actually trying to apply what you did. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that there would be techno authors that are actually like literally transcribing the expertise from their head onto the page, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. No,
2: you're. Yeah, pretty, you're that's you're pretty... exactly what I assumed was happening. Um, you know, which maybe a lot of people assume that because that's what it seems like. You you read these books by these experts. You know, like you mentioned Martin Fowler, and like you know that he's a guy who knows a bunch of stuff. And so it's kind of easy to naively assume that they're just taking the stuff they know and
3: dumping it onto the page. Well, that's totally not how it works. Yeah, you're always spot on with how a lot of a lot of people write books. That that Fieldstone method is pretty. It's it's ridiculously uh, popular. When I, whenever I end up seeing books uh, that I'm editing, a lot of times it is that initial conversation is well, I've been collecting these little nuggets over the years, and now it's. Uh, now I have a story I want to tell, and now, I got, and now my job is to put them all together. And that's like, yeah, that's exactly what your job is. Um, it's it's accumulated knowledge, it's accumulated wisdom, and a lot of times you're just a curator of these kinds of things. You know, you are going to ask someone to write a chapter for you here and there, but you're cur- you're curating this knowledge because you you as you as the primary author often have the experience to know what what's important, what aligns with the goals of, the, of your book or whatever and, and what's less important. So you, you're sort of pulling a lot of those things together. Even though you may not know the details of those things, you still maybe know who knows the details of those things.
1: And it's a good thing too because the way that, the way that books actually get finished is you have to work on them like every day. Or if not every day, like almost every day but on a very uh, regular rhythm and schedule. Yeah. And Uh, I don't know about anyone else, but at least me, I don't have the energy to, to write every day, uh, on a project like that. Like I get up in the morning, I try to do 750 words. Uh, first thing before I do anything else that I got that from the artist's way. And there's a site called 750 words.com, which is probably one of my picks, but it's that I can do every day, but like actual sit down and get like a serious amount of original writing committed to the page every day i can't do that but what i can do if i'm forcing myself to finish a book like what i'm currently doing with the rails five way is every day make edits right so like i'm moving some paragraphs around i'm validating stuff i'm trying some code refactoring i mean you know trying to just improve the the structure um you know importing the code instead of having it copied you know stuff, stuff like that that you can find something like that to do every day, right? Adding cross references, whatever whatever your mental capacity allows you to do that night. Yeah, um, and then eventually you're finished.
3: Yeah, make progress on the project every day. Don't necessarily have to write new stuff every day. So yeah, I think actually, the I think no. the first book I ever wrote. I think the first book I ever wrote. I think I wrote 900 pages for that book, and it, we ended up reducing it to 250. So a lot of the time can be spent deleting stuff too.
1: Yeah, deleting stuff. Um, I deleted the the RSpec chapter. I'm not sure if I'm going to put it back, but I was like, why am I... P-? Because what ended up happening was I, I added and added and added and added to the RSpec chapter and it got up to close to 100 pages, I think. I, I don't know what the printed output would be, but I mean, it's huge. <laughs> and I'm like, why is this in here? <laughs> like, I should pull this out and just make a testing... The Railway Book, and because there's all this other stuff I want to talk about with testing as well, not just the mechanics of the syntax of our spec and how you put suites together. I want to talk about the rationale and how what's what's my thoughts on how you do TDD and when it, when it's called for or not, and uh, you know what is the proper level of test coverage? How do you how do you get the best regression coverage? Things like that, and there's all this stuff, and eventually I realized I don't need to have this chapter in here. <laughs> I just pull it out. Um, and and I think being smart about reusing things that you have, like, I'm, I'm trying to get a hold of a lot of the lectures that I did at Andela because, uh, they were, they were recorded. And I think that I can actually take and transcribe some of those things and there's my content. And then it's just a matter of curating and boiling it down. Right. And getting it to the good stuff, putting it together in a, in a structure and a story that makes sense. And I got another book. Um, and a lot of us that are active in things like podcasting or giving talks and stuff like that, I, I think we have that. At our disposal is just a matter of, of figuring that out and, and actually grabbing hold of it.
2: So I'm, I'm curious so there's another thing I'll be that I'm oh go ahead, Chuck. no go ahead. Uh, there's another thing that I'm dying to know about the process of having written the Rails way which is you were telling the story about how you had a conversation with somebody from Addison Wesley about, about writing a book. What gave you the confidence that you could write a book? Because I'm thinking like, if somebody asked me to write a book, I'd be like, I don't know if I could write a book. And a a lot of people probably feel that way. So what made you feel like you could do it? I really wanted to write a book.
1: So for, for years at that point, I wanted to be an author, like it was just a, a conceit, you know, that, that I wanted to write. I liked writing at that point. I had been blogging. Like if you count if you count live journal, I'd been blogging on a regular basis for, you know, probably 10 or more years at that point. So I was used to writing on a regular basis, writing for fun. Right. And then I, when I, once I started blogging, um, in a serious way at ThoughtWorks, it was no longer just for fun. It was also to, to build a reputation and, and, you know, start getting my, my name out there. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I was cocky. I got, I, I have to admit, I mean, there's a certain amount of arrogance, whether it's called for or not that it takes to, to put yourself out there and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to claim the mantle of expertise on, on something. Knowing full well that you, you're not
2: actually an expert, <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, and I think it's probably important it anyway. to realize that like nobody comes and blesses you with permission to write a book. Like you just have to decide that you can, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. You, you just have to decide that you can. And that's, uh, you know, for, for better or worse, you know, it's the, I've, I've heard it said that, that that's one of the differences between the sexes for instance, is that, you know, uh, us males are, typically a lot more cocky about putting ourselves out there and, and pretending like we're experts on something and giving ourselves permission to go out there and talk about something. And, and, um, you know, it's something that I was preternaturally naturally blessed with, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had no, no shortage of that.
0: So I, I kind of want to ask, and you know, we've kind of been talking around this a little bit, but, um, It seems like in a lot of these books, yes, it's a reference, and yes, you try to cover mostly everything, right, in a reference book. But, I mean, some of this is going to be colored by your opinion on where we're at with Rails, um, you know, what's going on with Rails 5, what's the right way to do it. I mean, the Rails way kind of implies that, that, you know, this is the way you write Rails so I'm curious, um, what is your opinion of where we're at with Rails, and how did that influence the book, The Rails Five Way?
1: Well, I want to answer that first by by clarifying something, which is that the the Rails Way is a little misnamed. Um, it it probably is should or would more accurately be named the Rails What, and there is some. There's some stuff in there that lends itself to saying, this is the way that you do it, but given that it's Ruby and given the philosophy of Ruby development of Rails development, you know, there's at least two or three ways to do anything. And uh, in a lot of cases they're valid. Um, so the stuff where, where the book gets really prescriptive and lives up to its name has to do, for instance, with describing. Restful, you know how you use rest and and stuff like that. And in the view chapter, when I talk about helpers, I start getting a little prescriptive about some techniques and things like that. But but most of the book is a reference book in the sense that it pulls together, and I think, a well organized and comprehensive fashion, what you need in order to do day to day Rails development. And and my my objective was always to have a book that you could have at, at, you know next to your keyboard and you could just flip through it real quick. Um, you know, especially like if you were offline or something like that, or it's, just, uh, nowadays you actually need that. And, you know, a lot of people seem to buy the book in electronic form, you know, form. So I guess they're looking at it in a PDF reader or Kindle or whatever. But I mean, I still like having a paper book right next to me in, in that old school way, but the it's really is the rails what, and now, what i'm writing and what i'm proud to be writing is i'm going to call it mastering the rails way. and that's been a fieldstone effort uh, that's just getting underway I'm, I'm pulling the outline together and that is really like okay this is this is how ob writes rails apps you know and like this is kind of like the sum of my knowledge that, I, that i've gained in my you know 10 20 years of doing serious app development influenced by OO, influenced by people like Martin Fowler, you know, bringing those patterns together and and what, what makes me good at that. And that's coming a lot more out of my head, right? Because now it's not just reference material. Now it's very much more prescriptive and techniques and do this. Don't do that. Yes. That's there, but don't, I'm not even going to talk about it because you shouldn't do that. (laughs) Um,
2: Would it be possible, Obi, for you to give us a little bit of a feel for, for what's that like? Because here's something that I wonder. So I've worked on quite a number of Rails apps over the years. Yeah. And just because just of the roll of the dice of, of what the background of that project was and who was working on it, the code is probably not going to be very good, right? Um, yeah. And so most of the projects I've inherited are somewhere between horrific and just plain bad. Um, what I, what I don't get to see very much is something that's exemplary, you know? And so I always wonder like if this had been coded by somebody who really, really knew what they were doing, how different would it be? And I think the main thing I'm curious about is like, do you kind of just, um, put the things in the slots that Rails gives you to fill in or do you give it your whole, like do you put your own structure into it in a way that I might not even be aware of if that idea makes any sense? But I wonder if you could just kind of paint that picture a little bit.
1: Um, well, the big, I'm, I'm a big fan of the way that David, does rails apps as far as he's described the way that he uses rest and the way that he implements con- you know controllers and things like that so there's a lot of foundation in that because over the years I've found him to be right surprise surprise he made the framework he guides it the way that he works it is probably going to you know give you good results but there, there's so much more depth <laughs> you know when you, when you're actually working on rails apps day in day out and i I also have, you know, like, like for instance, right now, I'm with my day to day with, with Kickass. there's one project that I'm maintaining that it's a legacy app that was written by someone that didn't really know what they were doing. So it's pretty bad, uh, possibly horrific in places, but I'm also, I also have a couple of projects that I've written from scratch in rails five, uh, that are starting to, to get complicated and those are really good. So I'm seeing, I'm seeing the benefits of, of those things that I'm doing with them. And I'm kind of seeing a lot of the, the uh, promise of rails come to fruition because rails five is, is, you know, feels so mature. A lot of the libraries you rely on feel so mature. They just work. You're not like, you know, spending half your day debugging, uh, you know, you're basically not doing node and JavaScript uh, style development, which is very wasteful in my opinion, because it's so bleeding edge, you know, you're actually getting work done. But but there's so much depth there. There's so much depth into what what makes it the right way, the maintainable way to do stuff. Um, and, and they have to. A lot of them are very design, so they're subjective by by nature, very very design oriented. Like uh, your your OO design questions, your decisions around like how do I model something. Uh, like I've had a spate of uh, instances lately where I've had an object and a related template object. So it's like, basically you're choosing to you're, you're representing in your app at the app level, the fact that you have a a standardized kind of template or instance of something. And then as a client or a customer, you want to take that template and you want to make it your own. So, so how do you design that in your app? And there's, you know, there's at least two different, significant ways that you could go like to, you know, you come to a fork in the road, you go, how am I going to implement this? Um, one, you know, if you want me to delve into it for a couple of minutes, like you can just have one class. So I'll, I'll put it in the context of do props because this is like, like I'm, I'm rewriting do props, which is your, uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's like a thank you card system. So you have like the do prop standard stars, But when you're setting up a do props network, you're basically cloning, cloning a star and making it your own. So you can change the image, you can change the title, the description whatever. So you have like a standard star and you have a star. One of the ways you can implement this, if you want to have standard stars, is to have a foreign key association to the network that the star belongs to. And if you want it to be a standard star, meaning it doesn't belong to a particular network, you could leave that foreign key association null. Right? So then you just have this like special class of star that does not have, is not connected to a particular network. And then you could set up a scope and you could say, these are my templates where the, the foreign key is null. and, and you, But then if you do that, then what, what are the outcomes? like? What, what happens with that? What are the special cases you have to start putting in? You know, what kind of conditional logic do you have to put in? um and is it is it a violation of solid uh, you know proven oo methods you know are you putting more than one responsibility into that class is it really one class or is it really two concepts because one the the responsibility of one is to represent the concept of a particular star and the responsibility of the other is to re, is the realization of that concept with a particular network you get what i'm saying so so that that's that's pretty deep and and that's something that represents like okay if I'm going to talk about how do you do this in Rails that's the Rails way, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's too much. It's too deep to get into in a in a in a reference book. You can kind of allude to some of these things. You could drop hints. But if you if you <laughs> took all the opportunities to go into the how and the why of you do you know certain things a certain way, the, the book would get you know, thousands of pages long after a while.
2: Yeah. It seems like certain things can only really be meaningfully conveyed via example, which wouldn't be like necessarily super appropriate in a reference book. Um, But that's something that I just am dying to see. And maybe it's available somewhere and I just don't know about it, but like there exist all these open source projects and you can look at the code for it. Like I could go look at the code for sidekick or any other gem And that would be educational in a certain way, but it's not really like, it's not a production Rails app written for a client, you know, it's, it's a library. And so the code is going to be totally different. And so like the opportunity to kind of look over somebody's shoulder when they're, when they're writing a real (laughs) Rails application would be awesome. And I don't know if that's like, it's hard, it's hard because
1: clients, you know, they're They pay you to write an app and they don't want you splashing it on, you know, all over your book and telling people how to write the app that's going to compete with them. It takes a very open minded client to to say, yeah, it's okay." I'm confident enough in my business model and my brand uh, to know that it's not the actual source code that is going to let someone compete with me.
3: Right. This is this is a problem that transcends just you know uh, that, that transcends Rails. It's a it's an issue with just experiences in, in software development and because a lot of times you're sure maybe you get lucky and you're writing some CRUD application that you've written a hundred times before, but if you're writing something that you've if you're solving a problem you've never solved before and you're writing an application for that. All you have to go on is your experience. And so when I when I was uh, now when I started out consulting, I would run into these applications and the, and the code would be, oh my gosh, I can't believe a person would have done this. Then I realized the situation they were in. And I realized, well, they did the best they could with the knowledge they had in the situation and the time frame that they had. Um, and that's, that's, there's so many things like related to the second, second system effect, things like that. Yeah, if you had the time to rewrite it over, you'd have done it a different way. But you didn't. You wouldn't know that until you did it the wrong way first. Uh, and so, what I always wondered is, what can we do as a community to help out with these kinds of things? One of the things I found really awesome is the the database community. There's a there's actually a, a really great website out there that has database schemas for all kinds of different problems, all kinds of different problem domains. Um, you can look at it and you can see. Well, if you, if you're going to model, if you're going to model a store, uh, you know, an e-commerce solution and you want an example of a database schema to look at rather than trying to figure out your own, they've got one. If you're, if you're trying to do one for the spread of the Ebola virus and tracking that, this site has one. Um, so I'm wondering, what do you all think about that? What do you all think about ways that we can help share that knowledge that people need in order to make those those good decisions in the more specific domains?
0: Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote comp. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from The Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremoteconf.com.
3: The decisions in the more specific domains
1: well i i mean i'm doing my part with the books i mean that's my vehicle um and I'm, I'm actually in conjunction with preparing the books i'm i'm doing a parallel but related effort to rewrite this uh this back burner project that i have called do props um which was at one time, you know, venture funded and, and everything like that. And then it just kind of fizzled out, but kept a a small client base. And these loyal clients have been soldiering along with the same legacy app for, for like going on five years. And, um, I've tried maybe two or three times to actually rewrite it, but you, you know, something you guys might find interesting and, and I definitely would love to see more of in the community is, um, my son uh, I'll, I'll give you kind of the full context my son goes to this after-school program at a gaming store like you know like a board game store uh, nearby and uh, one of one of the people that works in the store that that actually takes care of him who I got to know uh, told me that he was a programmer and uh, I delved into that a little bit and it turned out that he um, had taken a couple of years of CS at the local community college and in his words, had done a couple of .NET apps for some friends and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, well, here, here's something that knows, here's someone that knows at least a little something. And um, right around New Year's, I made up my mind that I was going to take on an apprentice, uh, no matter what, and to, in 2017, it was kind of like a resolution. And uh, I went over to this guy, Josh, and I, I said, hey, um, I don't know if you know who I am or whatever, but you can look me up, you know, Google me or whatever. And I'm looking for an apprentice. It's something I've done before. And my apprentices have gone on to work at Pivotal Labs and other places and like, you know, done really well for themselves. If you'd like the opportunity to apprentice for me, here's the deal. Uh, I want someone that can work with me for about two hours a day, every day. I can't pay you. Your payment is basically, you know, what you're going to learn. And we'll work on whatever I say we're going to work on. Uh, And really no other commitment from you needed other than maybe to read Apprenticeship Patterns so you know what the heck's going on. And uh, he was like, hmm, I I don't know. Let me get back to you. And a day later, he was like, yes, I'm very interested. Uh, So he's, he's been coming over, uh, almost every day, uh, you know, around nine, nine thirty, 30 and he works for a couple hours with me and I've been doing something I haven't done before. I basically wrote out the prime directive, uh, for this app. I'm kind of looking for the piece of paper here. I have it written down somewhere, but the, the prime directive I have kind of posted near my desk here and it's like, do it Right. <laughs> Uh, you know, elegance and, you know, correct design. And we've been doing this since January, almost every day. And it's kind of like we were saying earlier, the way the book gets written is by doing a little bit every day. Well, this guy's kind of like in his, in his apprentice kind of way, my personal trainer, in the sense that he shows up every day, we have an, you know, a standing appointment and then he comes. And no matter what else I have going on, I drop everything else. And we sit down and we do proper TDD on do props. It's a domain. I know, you know, exactly what I want to build. I have my vision for what it's supposed to be, because it's like the third or fourth time that I'm trying to rewrite it. And there's a legacy app that I ultimately want to replace. So I know kind of like the requirements of what needs to be done, but he doesn't know anything. So I have to, it turned out that he, you know, actually knows very reasonably little about anything having to do with programming. And so I've had to go down to like fundamentals and first principles for almost everything that we're doing. And it's at times painfully slow, but it's also so good <laughs> one because I'm helping him. but, but two, because it's like forcing me to go through in a methodical way. And like, by teaching, relearn all of these things that I, I'm like
3: taking the journey with him again. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I'm I, saying. exactly. I, when I when I when I started teaching full time uh, a few years ago, that was the biggest revelation I had is, you know, you know, programming, but when you teach it to someone who's never who really has no basics, uh, y- your eyes are really open to what it takes to get there and all the all the little intricacies that we have forgotten because they become a second nature to us. No, I think this idea of, of apprenticeships, I think that's something, too, that I think that's awesome that you're doing that. And I think that's something that I'd, I'd love to see a lot more um, people uh, and not just successful people. I'd like to see people with experience do something like this and and, and figure out ways to sort of pay it forward. Because it's so hard when you're starting out, when you you, you, you finish. Uh, I, I've looked at my students who finish their 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 software development classes and they go get their first job and there there's just so much that they can't learn when they're uh when they're in school because it has to be a controlled environment and then when they're in the uncontrolled environment working on real world problems uh, there's there's so much more learning that happens but it's so overwhelming so i i love i've always loved the idea of apprenticeship programs i'd love to see you know if if in, if the industry the companies can't do an apprenticeship program it's pretty cool to see that they're. It's just you know
1: it, right? you know what the biggest challenge is it's just not it's not capitalistic. Yeah, it's it's the the fact that it's not happening is a symptom of a broader malaise in our society, mm-hmm. and the reason that everything is so effed up is because you don't do something like an apprenticeship like what I'm describing here for the profit motive. No, you don't. You know, you don't invest that kind of time and effort into someone because generally speaking, you're, you you do not have a direct RI. You're literally just giving it to the universe.
2: I also think right. it's kind of a, a, long-term short-term confusion on the employer's part. Um, there's, you know, I worked on, on an application over the last six months, which had really bad code and it was bad and just every day getting worse. And I asked myself, why is the code so bad? Because the code didn't write itself. The problem is the the process by which that code came into existence. And I asked why that is. And what the problem always is everywhere is people feel like because they're under such a time crunch that they can't afford to take the time to write good code, um, which is partially the fault of the developer. Because it's, it's not your manager with your, with your manager's deadlines who is, you know, holding a gun to your head and saying, write this code badly. It's ultimately you who's writing the code. But at the same time, I think there's something to, like, the employer giving you permission to do your job right and, like, not getting you in, in trouble for taking the, times to do, taking the time to do things correctly. And I think you guys probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not not sure how, like how that can be addressed, but I, I put something in place that I, that I found to be really helpful, which was I I said to the management, what if we do like a weekly training program where we just spend an hour and take, take what's our biggest pain right now, which was we didn't have any test coverage on the front end. And let's start with that. And let's address that because if we want to get from, from having this bad situation to having a good situation. If we wanna get from point A to point B, first the whole team has to agree like what point B is. And so if we have these training sessions, then it, then it can um, help us get that shared vision. And that was really helpful. And that was just a pretty small thing, but it, it requires one thing, which is it requires the employer to be sufficiently enlightened that they understand that they're gonna be better off in the long run by taking the time to invest today in educating their employees, but that that's going to the, benefit them.
1: But it's uh, it's it's totally unclear that they'll be actually better off in concrete terms. They may be personally better off in terms of their network and their their community, but will the shareholders be better off? And one of the things I come to accept over time is that probably not. And that that's the reason that that things don't get better in in a corporate environment.
2: Well, now, it, 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 it also the other way. Like I like to turn that around because people say like customers don't care about code and it's true that they don't care about the code until the day when production grinds to a halt because the code is so bad that nobody can, can touch anything, you know?
1: There's probably, there's some subset where I think that's true, but man, I, I've just had I've had experiences where like if a business model is successful it's actually so successful that it doesn't matter what the code does there's always enough money to fix it and other situations where if the business model is not successful then there's never enough money to fix it like then to get into a sweet spot where you actually can do this long term I don't even know that it's possible in in uh, venture driven and, and kind of like product driven companies. In fact, I was kind of thinking of this as you were talking earlier, uh, you know what my biggest source of luck has been and like the reason that I am who I am today and, and that I'm in the position that I'm in today, ThoughtWorks and Hashrocket, that's it. Because at ThoughtWorks, what I learned is that if you're, um, I was gonna say cojones, but you know, if your arrogance is is sufficiently large, if your ego, as a company is sufficiently large, and your reputation is sufficiently strong, you can pretty much just bully customers into doing exactly what you want them to do and having it take as long as it needs to take. That, uh, and I don't know if I'm getting that across correctly, but like basically we were ThoughtWorks, right? Like we were going to do it the right way, whether you wanted us to do it the right way or not. And it didn't matter what it was gonna cost. On a lot of projects, that was the, that was the way we were able to do things. And because of that, while I was at ThoughtWorks, I actually got time and experience on projects that were done, let's say, quote unquote, the right way, that actually had solid foundations for good code, for factoring, pairing, all the agile practices, all this stuff. And that's part of what made ThoughtWorks ThoughtWorks, right? And then what do I do? I leave ThoughtWorks and I start Hashrocket and I operate the same way, right? I like to say that Hashrocket, I was like at peak arrogance is we, we would take clients on and we would say, it's our way or the highway. Like, if you're coming to us, it's because you want your stuff built correctly and you know you want a foundation and it really did not matter whether they needed it or not. We were going to build them something really, really high quality. And, and we pull that off a lot, enough to get a reputation for doing it. And then you get a positive feedback loop going and then you're able to like actually get that experience of building things the right way, and you're able to learn it. And without that, uh, you know, comparing and contrasting that to situations that I've been in that have not been that, where I've been at, you know, in enterprise situations or, or as an employee in IT shops, uh, you just, it, it's impossible. <laughs> the pressures that your boss puts on you, you know, to deliver, to cut corners and things like that never lets you write it the right way. And if you never have that experience of actually correctly architecting or re-architecting, as the case may be, a a system, how do you ever learn it? How do you learn it if no one ever touches, you know, teaches it to you?
2: Right. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear you say that because I've had that same thought before. Like, is it even possible for me to, like, uh, improve my skills beyond where they are now? If I'm just like hammering away at this horrible legacy code, that's like, it's so far below what I already know. Let's
1: say no. Let's just take a moment (laughs) as a community and let's say no, it's not possible. Yeah. And it, it won't, not everyone will be lucky enough to be able to do this, but if you have the nature to be able to take the risk of rejecting that situation and going to a thought works, going to a place where you can actually do that good work, do it. You literally will not be able to level up unless you do, you know, unless you get yourself into one of the situations. Um, and to say otherwise is, you know, like I, it feels, it, it is beginning to feel disingenuous to me. I mean, I guess at the stage where I'm at, Am I a little cynical? Yeah, I'm a little cynical because it's starting to feel disingenuous to say that you can take a beginner and you can somehow educate them uh, in a real world situation where there's deadline pressure and whatever to do things the right way. They'll do it the same, you know, they'll just bang their head against the wall until eventually they learn some lessons and eventually they start you know, actually doing certain things the right way, but in terms of getting a holistic immersion into the right way to do things, you you only get that in these situations where you can apprentice or be parts of teams that are you know just really high performing teams.
2: And, and I just want to chime in with something else too, which is like you can work with ThoughtWorks and get a certain experience, you can work on like a horrible legacy application and and get a certain experience, um, but like if you want something in between and like if you just have no other options a couple other things i think you can do are like to just do your own greenfield side project like by yourself like i've done that myself before and i've found value in it um and also like finding clients where like i own the client like rather than working for a client through an agency or something like that like finding a client that doesn't have an existing code base and I'm just writing some code for them to solve a business problem and I have complete control over everything technical, that's another situation where like, it's at least better than maintaining a legacy app as far as learning goes.
0: Yeah, but the thing is, is and I think this is Obi's point, is that um, most beginners and even people who are somewhat experienced who are trying to level up uh, you tend to do things the way you're shown to do things. And so if you wind up in a ThoughtWorks or a company where they're actually doing things the way that they should be doing them, then you're just going to do things the way you're shown. And then you
1: can learn how to do it more or less the right way. And yeah, I get, if, a vi- I get a visceral example of that every day. Sorry to cut you off, but like I'm teaching Josh, and like the very first time that uh, we faced a, a little design decision, like the very first complexity we ran into. And I said, okay, let's let's write a spec to, to prove out how we're going to do this. And he was like, okay. And we just started writing a spec. There was no discussion of like, this is what TDD means and, and all that stuff. Like he just took it as gospel immediately without any justification whatsoever. And I guarantee you that if we, you know, as, we, as we've done this, he's just learning that that's the way that you do it. And when he takes that forward, He's just going to assume that's the way you do it. Like someday, if he gets a job, you know, like let's say, quote unquote, a normal job, and they tell him, you know, don't write a test or you, you know, we got, we don't have time for testing, he's going to have a
3: WTF moment. <laughs> Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. That's but, super. That's super common, and that, that's it's super common in from what I've seen with beginners getting their first job is if they're in an environment where they, where, if they have an internship, or we're at a place that lets them do the right thing, and then they go get a job doing other things, they are they are very they they struggle very much. One of my former students learned all kinds of modern stuff when he was in our classes, and then got his got his first programming job at a place uh, that uses a programming language that no longer exists. You can't YouTube it. You can't Google it. You can't, you can't find any information <laughs> on this programming language. It no longer exists because it was a commercial programming language, you know, developed by a specific company to solve a specific problem domain. And that company folded up. Was it pick? No, I'm oh. not going to say anything about it, what it is, but I'm, what I'm saying is he didn't know how to handle that because all he had was, you know, his, his fundamentals of, of building software. And I worry sometimes that we're as uh, we as as uh, people who are trying to educate, and we as software developers are not mindful enough about those those kinds of things, those fundamentals, those things that transcend languages. And we tend to focus too much in on specific ways of doing things. I worry about that sometimes, especially for people at the beginning who they treat they treat our maxims as laws. They they treat you know test everything as a law. Yeah, okay, I'm going to test everything. Uh, rather than the, the more, uh, the more experience you get, you realize, well, okay, we don't, we don't actually test everything, but we test some things and we test the important things and the, the beginners, they don't. I mean, yeah, that's really understand. the, that's the
1: beauty. That's the beauty of apprenticeship versus yeah. classroom though, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. Absolutely. Because, uh, you know, a proper apprenticeship is measured in years and right. that's like, what? You know, yeah. I'm going to spend years being an apprentice. Like, yeah, yes, because over, over the course of years, you're going to learn when you test and when you don't.
3: <laughs> look, at, yeah. look, at, look, at, look at the people who come and do electrical work on your house. A lot of times there's an apprentice along and he's the one pulling all the cables and stuff and he's the one doing all that work. But he's learning those kinds of skills. He's learning how to do it and he's learning it in so many different different environments. And eventually he'll pay that forward to someone else in the future.
0: Well, and the other thing is, is that that apprentice, you know, like you said, he's doing it in so many different circumstances, but when he gets out on his own and he, you know, he tries to do something different going back to OB's WTF example, right? This guy's going to eventually go work somewhere else and he's going to, he's going to run into, okay, don't write that test and he's going to do it. And then he's going to be like, man, I spent like 10 minutes just sitting there staring at the screen because I'm so used to writing a spec that I didn't even know what to do. Until I finally just kind of noodled it out. And the spec was a tool that allowed me to do that. And I had a check at the end. And so he figures out, okay, you know, through some kind of experimentation, I I definitely want to write these specs first if I can. And then when he gets to the edge of his knowledge, you know, the things that Obi doesn't walk him toward and lead him to the water and show him how to, you know, how to do what he has to do, you know, he, he knows basically how that's approached because he's seen so many examples of, you know, this worked this way and this worked that way and it, it becomes ingrained, well then I think it's probably this or that because based on what I already know and the things that I've seen that are trade-offs, you know, this pays off. And and you only get that through some kind of longer term apprenticeship.
1: Yeah, and I uh, you know, just a side note here, sidebar If you're listening to this and you're in a position to to either directly or indirectly influence government policy towards retraining programs and, uh, you know, technical kind of training, uh, you know, strongly consider subsidizing putting, uh, you know, people who need retraining into apprenticeship kinds of situations. I mean, we're we're paying them unemployment anyway. You might as well make it a a productive uh, use of their time. And, And you can start someone with very, very little knowledge of programming whatsoever. I mean, they're gonna end up sitting next to you and, and struggling to, to, to follow along, but, but they will get over that hump eventually. I mean, we learned this, Jason and I learned this in, uh, in Africa as well. Cause we, you know, some of, our, some of our people just had never used a terminal before, uh, you know? Um, and, and we were taking them from first principles and, and trying to teach them up. You can do it, it is doable uh it's just a matter of who subsidizes it like i'm 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 fortunate enough to be in a position right now where i can personally subsidize this this exercise right like someone might be listening to this and going obi you're spending two hours a day with an apprentice like i have to be at work at nine (laughs) o'clock uh so i mean i'm i'm fortunate enough to do it but i mean if you there are people out there there are people out there who are are capable of if not doing this directly themselves influencing programs that can subsidize this this sort of thing and then eventually, and I, I know this is a long-term uh, goal, a long-term vision, we, we could as a society get to the point where, where it was more common.
0: Now, we, we need to get to pick soon, but I have one more question that I'm hoping you can answer in like a minute or two. And that is, how does Rails actually help us do this? Because we've been talking a lot about how we as people do this, but Rails as a tool, how does this fit into this? Or is it just kind of a tangential or orthogonal
1: conversation? I have an answer for that. I, I have a pretty good answer for that. I think the stuff that really sucks about my time with Josh or, or when it really bogs down and, and demotivates me is when something doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, like, you have like an example? We ha- I'll give you a perfect example. Like we're trying to, we're trying to use uh, bootstraps alpha version, mm-hmm. like, you know, and, and, I, I went in and put in tabs, they didn't work. I'm like, okay, well maybe the syntax changed. It's not the same as Bootstrap 3, three whatever. So we go and we look at the reference and, and if, yeah, they had changed. So we put in all the classes, everything like that, still didn't work. We double check it, didn't work. Triple check it, didn't work. Delete the whole thing, start over, do it a different way, didn't work. We chewed up over half an hour or more trying to figure out how tabs worked or why they weren't working. And what it was, and including searching GitHub issues and stuff like that. And like some of them made it sound like it didn't actually work, they're broken or whatever. When stuff doesn't work, it's incredibly demotivating, especially for a beginner, because like even with fundamental stuff that does work, he's kind of drowning a little bit. But if, if it's stuff that you're trying to debug why it doesn't work at all, like now, now you, I've, I, there's times where I feel like I'm completely losing him, right? So mm-hmm. how does that re- how does that answer your question? With Rails five, as long as you stay away from from some of these new additions, everything mostly just works. You know, so like. I, I might have to Google to remind myself or you know look in my book to, to remind myself of, you know, what is this function, what is this helper called, or whatever, but it just works. So you're able to move quickly and you're able to make definitive statements about this is how you do this thing. And and that makes this whole topic that we've been discussing of apprenticeship and teaching and learning to do things the right way a lot easier to swallow.
0: All right everybody. This is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS RemoteConf. Uh, we just picked speakers. Things are looking really good. And uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment, about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out, jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv slash conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there.
1: And teaching and learning to do things the right way a lot easier to swallow.
0: All right. Well, um, I do want to be mindful of time. So let's go ahead and do some picks. Um, Jason, do you want to start us off with picks?
2: Sure thing. So I recently was on a very long flight and I brought some books with me. One of the books I brought with me was one I read a long time ago and wanted to reread. It's a, it's a book by an author named Bill Bryson, who's pretty well-known author. So you might've heard of him. Um, This particular book was called the lost continent. And he, uh, he drove around America and went to all these, all these small towns searching for like the perfect small town. And all of Bill Bryson's books are just super funny. And this one is really funny too. Plus one. Um, so I really recommend that book and pretty much all this book. So that's pick number one. Uh, my second pick is a place. So last week I went in, uh and delivered this, this uh, three day training class on Angular and the place I taught it was in Sofia, Bulgaria. I had to look on the map to see where Bulgaria was because I didn't even know. But I went there, and it was, it was a really interesting place. Um, it's in the Balkan Mountains. It was pretty cold when I went there, similar climate to here in, here in Michigan. Um, but it was a really interesting place. And, you know, off the beaten path, like you don't hear people say, like, I'm going to go on vacation to Bulgaria. But if you get a chance, it's a really, really interesting place. Uh, go check it out. So that's my second pick.
0: Nice, Brian. What are your picks?
3: All right, uh, I have two picks. The first is Pi Hole. Um, <laughs> yeah, Pi Hole. Pi as in Raspberry Pi. Uh, it's a it's basically it, it's a black hole for your uh, internet advertisements and, and things like that. So you set it up on a Raspberry Pi or a small device on your network. Uh, it runs a DNS server, and you just point your internal all your internal DNS, like on your router, just for your DHCP, just point the DNS to this thing, and then you're blocking you're blocking all the malware and the, and the advertisements on all the devices on your network. Uh, takes mm. like a minute or so to set up and uh, and it works really well. It can auto there's a couple of block lists it can subscribe to and automatically pull the new the new uh, uh, block lists down. Uh, it's pretty great. Yeah, really easy to get going.
1: I guess the implication being that you don't have to do, install this function on all of your devices.
3: Right, right. because especially like if you you know think about it, you may have you may have like an ad blocker or something on your on your da- on your laptop, but then you go grab your phone to look at something and all of a sudden, bam. You can't, you know, ads everywhere. Um, but if you're, you know, your, your mobile devices and all that are going to be covered by this too. Awesome. Um, the other one I have, which I, I mentioned a long time ago, but it's still, it's it's become a daily fixture for me is a Vim plugin called Vim Wiki. Um, it's been around for a long time, but uh, I can't, I can't stress how great this is because I'm, I'm in Vim most of my day. Um, and I often find myself needing to take notes during a meeting, or take some uh, notes about a conversation, or you know keep a to-do list, things like that. And and Vim Wiki is just a keystroke away in Vim. Whatever whatever I'm working on, I can I can use leader ww and my wikis right there, and I can start taking notes right away. I don't have to switch to another program, I don't have to switch context. I can immediately start taking notes. Um, and it supports to-do lists. It supports links to other pages, internal pages, external pages, and you can export the thing to an HTML documentation structure if you need to. Um, but yeah, uh, so I've been keeping my code snippets in it. I've been keeping, uh, meeting notes in it. I've been keeping my weekly to do's in it because one of the things that I've learned a long time ago is that if you, uh, I was starting to feel like I was, wasn't accomplishing anything at the end of each day. I'd like, oh, I had this whole day and I didn't accomplish anything. So I started at the end of the day, I started just keeping a journal of what, what did I do today? Um, and it's really helpful to look back on that, uh, throughout, you know, the weeks and the months and, uh, you know, if you ever have to have a one-on-one with your manager, uh, it's actually really helpful to have a, a daily log of all the things that you've accomplished and all the things that you did, uh, so you can identify patterns and stuff. And this, this, you know, Vimwiki made that frictionless for me to just keep jot down what I, what I, what I got done each day. Those are my two.
0: Awesome. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. Um, the first one is, is that uh, if you're on the Ruby Rogues mailing list, you've probably noticed that you've been getting a lot of emails about JS RemoteConf. Of course, by the time this comes out, that was like a few weeks ago. Um, and I use a system called Drip and I just, I love it to death. So uh, anyway, if you're looking to do um, that kind of thing, you know, email marketing, then definitely check it out. Um, one other thing that I'm going to pick and I I, I'm trying to find the link in my uh, browser history, but um, I have decided that my next computer that I buy is going to, I'm actually going to build a PC and put Windows on it because the MacBook Pro just kind of turned me off on, on, on that kind of thing. It wasn't a big enough step up for me. So anyway, um, I found a guide or at least a list of parts that you can buy Um, I modified it some, so I'll go ahead and put links into the show notes for that. Um, But anyway, um, so yeah, I'm building a PC. It's going to cost me about $2,000 to put it all together. But I'm looking forward to having a machine that has like 64 gigs of RAM and, you know, a ton of hard drive space and stuff like that, which is something I'm really not getting out of my MacBook Pro that I currently have. And I didn't really see it as a major step up to get the other Um, One other pick that I have, if you're new, because we talked a lot about apprenticeships, um, is Newbie Remote Conf, which is going to happen in July. Um, It's an online conference. Um, If you sign up now, it's $100. The price will go up. So you probably want to do that soon. Um, So definitely check that out as well. And then finally, um, for my microphone, I talk a lot about my audio equipment, um, you know, when I buy new stuff. Um, so I bought this uh, shock mount, which is if you bump the arm, it doesn't vibrate in the microphone. Well, the elastics are pretty crappy on it. And so I found some new elastics uh, for it. Um, and this is for the RE20 shock mount. So I'll put links to that in the show notes as well. Um, but they're a lot thicker bands and it'll actually hold the microphone up, which this doesn't do um obi uh, yeah do you have some picks for us
1: yeah absolutely i love this part um one real quickly uh i mentioned uh, earlier in the show uh the artist's way uh which um awesome book you've probably heard of it but uh I, I i don't i've tried to read it like three or four times i never get past the first couple of chapters but one of the takeaways i got from it was to, to unblock yourself creatively at the beginning of each day by, by writing uh, in a journal. And the best tool that I've found that I've been using now for over five years is called 750words.com. And it, it has a really, really nice uh, interface for developing streaks of writing. Uh, It uses a a bowling scoring metaphor. So if you if you hit, it's got a strip of 30 boxes across the top of the interface and for, for the days of the month. And when you get your 750, you get an X. If you get uh, less than 750, you get a slash. It's like a spare. If you don't write, you get an empty box and it, it motivates you to keep it going. Uh, I was looking at my stats uh, and I've written a lot, like almost 100,000 words that way. Um, and it plus gives you all this metadata. I, I can't recommend it enough. It used to be free. I think it's got a small charge now, but really well worth it. Uh, especially if you're trying to practice being a writer or a creative of any, of any type. So highly recommended 750 words.com. I love to plug them cause they're just amazing and I, I want them to stay alive forever. Um, and I, I want to also mention, I spent a week in Cuba, <laughs> um, kind of riffing off, uh, Jason's recommendation of Bulgaria, um, probably some similarities there, but it, in a Caribbean setting with, with better music <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, for me, it was going back and, and researching my roots because both my parents are from Cuba. They immigrated after the revolution and, um, it was just amazing. It was just, I, I, and I know tons have been has been said about Cuba, but they're opening up, so it's really easy to go. Like you might think, oh, isn't it a big deal to go? Like American citizens are not allowed to go. No, you're totally allowed to go. No big deal on the visa. You pay fifty dollars. There's direct flights on Delta and JetBlue. Um, you have to take cash because your credit cards don't work, and it's an eye-opening experience to actually see how life works in an actual socialist society. So this, like, go look at what, uh, you know, certain people are afraid of and it's, it's definitely gone too far in the other direction where, you know, there's, there's economic issues, but it's, it's amazing and eye opening as an American to go and see it. And also like, you know, as a Cuban American, I grew up with a lot of propaganda on this side about how bad things are in Cuba. Well, I got there and realized, oh my God, like, People aren't starving. The highways are great. Uh, you know, as far as I can tell, there's medical care for for everyone. Uh, people are reasonably happy and do the things that you would associate. Uh, but they don't have a lot of those excesses that we have that I think are kind of poisonous to to our culture. So, two thumbs up. Highly recommended for for Cuba. Uh, you know, go before it opens up so much that it turns into everywhere else. Um, okay, and then I want to plug a couple of things. Uh, one is. I'm speaking at MagmaConf uh, in Colima, Mexico, um, which is near Guadalajara, uh, doesn't cost too much to fly into Guadalajara from almost anywhere in the States. It's an amazing conference that has been going on for, for several years now, really, really good organizers. They really know what they're doing. It's at a beautiful beach location, I'm giving the keynote on the second day, I believe, Uh, the keynote is going to be called let's laugh. So we don't cry. I'm going to be talking about kind of my philosophy of life and how it relates to development and and where we're going. And, uh, I'm going to bring in some elements of philosophy around, uh, absurdist thought and, uh, existentialism and things like that. So I'm, I'm trying to make that really interesting. Uh, so if you want to go, uh, I know that you can get a ticket for about 30% off now with a coupon code, but I'm going to uh, see if I can get your listeners uh, a 50% off code. It's still time to, to get a ticket. Um, and then also I'm running what I think is a really good deal right now uh, for purchasers of the lean pub version of the rails five way. So mm-hmm. you can currently buy the, the, the rails five way on lean pub, uh, which by the way is a fantastic service. Uh, but, Importantly, uh, if you pay, I think like ten dollars extra right now, you can get uh, free early access or ten dollar early access to my next two titles. Which means that, like, basically, there'll be a coupon code specifically for the people that buy this package deal. And as soon as I start publishing betas of mastering the railway and testing the railway, which I will be doing in the summer, uh, you'll get immediate access to those uh, without having to pay anything additional. Uh, so that's, uh, those are my two plugs, uh, as picks.
0: Awesome. Well, if people want to follow you, follow up on what you're doing, um, you know, it sounds like lean pubs a good way, but do you have a blog or Twitter or GitHub that you want to plug for us real quick?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, probably the best portal to, to all that stuff is to just go to obfernandez.com. That's my name dot uh, com and there's links to my twitter and to my medium blog and to uh, my shop where i sell contracts and things like that um contract templates um follow me on twitter at ob obie i'm um, not a super active twitter user but uh you know i do generally post links to all my relevant activities and things that i'm doing uh on twitter
0: all right well thank you for coming obie um, you're somebody I've been watching for a while and it's been fun to just chat and kind of hear where you're at these days.
1: Thank you guys. Um, it's, uh, it's a real honor and a pleasure to, to be on the show. I hope it's not the last time. Nope. Won't it's be. not the first time actually, believe it or not. I, I, I was on the show during a RubyConf once with Josh Susser. Oh yeah. And some of the other folks. Yeah. But, but yeah,
0: really enjoyed it. All right. Well, we'll wrap this one up. Uh, Thanks everyone for coming and we'll catch everyone next week.
2: Bye guys. Bye. Bye.
0: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.